We're continuing to study through the minor prophets this summer, and uh, we've been the last couple Sundays looking at Zephaniah, and we're going to wrap up Zephaniah this morning, chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And if you've been here the last couple Sundays, you know that Zephaniah is an intense little book. It, it is, it's kind of white hot. Uh, it's a short, small book, but it, it punches way above its weight class, you know. It hits pretty hard. And the reason Zephaniah is so intense was because Zephaniah, he was a prophet who spoke in the, uh, the late 600s. BC, so like 640, 630-ish, somewhere in that time frame. And it was a time when God's people in Jerusalem were spiritually asleep. They needed to be woken up. You get a glimpse of their spiritual condition. If you remember last Sunday, look at chapter 3, verse 2 in Zephaniah, where it says, look at verse 1, "'Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled.'" She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. It's about as bad as it gets. Really disobedient, really tuned out to God, not seeking God. And so Zephaniah is on a mission to try to wake this people up and get them back to seeking the Lord. In fact, turn to chapter 2 of Zephaniah. Look at verses 1 to 3. I would argue that chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, is the main thrust of the whole book. This is the main thing that Zephaniah is trying to accomplish. It says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Godwin preached this two weeks ago, "'Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and the day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you.'" Here we go. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So so do you hear the tone of that? It's like kind of a grab you by the lapels sort of guy going like, wake up. You you guys got to start seeking God. You, you, You need to start looking for him and calling out to him and, and trusting him. Seek the Lord. So the rest then of Zephaniah is, and this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think like the rest of Zephaniah is the motivation why to seek the Lord. So the command is like people wake up, seek God, stop being complacent, stop just you know, being on autopilot, really look for God, and now he's going to try to motivate us to seek the Lord. And he does two things to do that. Two sort of general approaches to motivate us to wake up and seek God. The first is pretty much the first three-fourths of the book, chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. And the first motivation is this. Look, you need to seek God because judgment is coming, right? And that's why I said this is kind of a white-hot, intense book. It's, it's you need to seek God because judgment is coming. He's, he's coming to judge the world. So you need to get with it before it's too late, that's like three-fourths of Zephaniah, right? It's, it's, it's really intense. You know, for instance, look at chapter 1. Remember how the whole book started? Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where God says through Zephaniah, I will sweep everything away from the face of the earth. Whew. 
Verse 3, I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. It's creation language except in reverse. God is going to decreate his creation. It's a terrifying glimpse of the coming judgment of God. You know, the world will end someday. But it won't end because a rogue meteorite hits the earth, and it won't end because of a solar flare. The world is going to end because God is going to come back in judgment to call the world to account, and it's not going to be pretty. So Zephaniah, most of Zephaniah is like, so therefore seek the Lord. Like, come on, wake up. God's judgment is coming. But then there's another reason we should seek the Lord And that's where we come to our text today. The other reason to seek the Lord is in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And and the second reason we should seek the Lord is like the polar opposite of the first reason. It's night and day. It is 180 degrees different. If the first reason we should seek the Lord is because of this epic, terrifying tsunami of God's wrath that is coming upon the world someday, like you should flee that. The second reason to seek the Lord is because of the unspeakably wonderful salvation that we can have. So, so do you hear that? So it's like one, one reason to seek the Lord is kind of a push. It's like, hey, God's judgment's coming. Get going. The other reason to seek the Lord is more of a pull. It's, oh, and the salvation that you can have in Christ is so unspeakably wonderful. Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on. You've got to have this. And that's why I said it's, it's like this jarring difference. You get to chapter 3, verse 9, and it's almost like a different book because you go from terrifying glimpses of judgment to wonderful promises of salvation. And so I want to just go to that other reason this morning and, and try to show us the wonderful blessings that come when you repent of your sin and trust in Christ and seek Him. It's not just that you escape hell, but you gain a heaven that is in some ways hard to describe. So let me do it. Let me just read Zephaniah 3, 9 to 20, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Zephaniah 3, 9 to 20. Here's the coming salvation. He says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Oh, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. 
I will rescue the lame and scatter those, gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. I kind of don't even know how to preach verses 9 to 20. Um, I, I struggled with this all week to write this sermon because it's, it's just so good. There's just so many things I want to point out. You know what I feel like when I read Zephaniah 3, 9 to 20? I feel like it's when I go to the North End in Boston. Do you know where I'm going? I'm in Hanover Street. Do you know where I'm going? I'm going to Mike's Pastry Shop in my head. Is there anyone here who's never been to Mike's Pastry Shop? A few? Okay. After the service, I want you to come up. We're going to pray for you. <laughs> because you've been deprived. I, you know, I, I, I love Mike's Pastry Shop. You go into Mike's Pastry Shop, and well, there's wall-to-wall people because everyone has, has made the pilgrimage there. But you, you go in, and there's all these counters, and they're just filled with, like, all of these things. I don't know. How, I don't ever had to choose when I go in there. So, you know, it's like there's the cannoli rack with like 20 different cannolis, and then there's like the, the, you know, stuffed cheese pastry things, then there's the little fruit glazed things, and I don't even know what they are, you know, and then you walk up to the lady, she's like, what, what do you want? And I'm just like, uh-uh, yeah, that's what I want, you know. So I feel that same sense of, of discombobulated wonder is I come to Zephaniah 3, 9 to 20, because I just feel like God's like, and here's all the stuff I'm going to do when I save you. And it's like, ah, I can't believe it. There's so much here. Uh, So, I mean, this could be a whole sermon series, just working through this and and savoring the blessings of our salvation in Christ. So what I want to try to do is just point out a few of the racks, the pastry displays for you this morning, of the blessings of salvation so that you will be motivated and I will be re-motivated to continue seeking the Lord. Not only to flee judgment, but to embrace the salvation that God has for us. And so let me just try to point out three blessings this morning, just to kind of quickly show them to you, to bring you up to the display case, to lead your eyes to wander over the pastries of salvation so that you would be motivated to know more of God. Here's the first one. Number one, seek the Lord because he will purify his people from their sins. There is purification in the Lord. Look at verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. I'm going to purify their lips so that they can call on me. Now, this is a remarkable thing because if you remember, again, who's Zephaniah preaching to? People whose lips have disqualified them from serving the Lord. People whose lips have have made it so that they should not be serving the Lord. These are the last people who should be calling on the name of the Lord because of what they've done with their lips. For instance, go back to chapter 1. How have these people used their lips? Chapter 1, verse 5, Zephaniah describes them as those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech, 
which is one of the, the gods of the Ammonites. And so, so they're, they're worshiping the Lord, kind of, but they're worshiping other gods. They're sort of making up their own hodgepodge religion, their own hodgepodge spirituality. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I kind of cafeteria, pick a little this, pick a little that. But, but they're not swearing by the Lord alone. They're swearing by other gods and other religions. And so they don't deserve to serve the Lord. Or, or look at verse uh, 9. God says, on that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold. That's like a superstitious thing. Who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. There's deceit going on. People are lying to each other. And then, of course, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, here's what they're saying, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. You know, people say that. Ah! No, you believe this, and I believe that. And we all have our different beliefs. And if that helps you, that's fine. But it's not like there's really, you know, God of the Bible. It's not like God will actually do things. I mean, spirituality is just kind of something that helps you through your day, and I have mine that helps me through my day. But God doesn't actually do anything. You know, you just got to kind of do it yourself, and you got to take charge of your own life and, and just live your life the best you can in a way that makes you happy. And that's the important thing, people say. Because God doesn't do anything good or bad. God doesn't do anything. You know, God is just kind of an, an idea that some people use to help them. But if it doesn't help you, that's okay. Use your own idea. But we don't actually think of God as there actually is a real God who actually made the world and who actually does things and who actually might come and judge the world. Like, oh, come on. Really? I don't think so. People say these things today. And so these are the things that are coming out of the lips of this people. And not just their lips, obviously their lives and their thoughts and their actions. The lips is just one example. And so they need their lips purified if they're going to serve the Lord because they've said so many things against him. You know, we need our lips purified if we're going to serve the Lord, if we're going to call upon the Lord. We, we, we need our lives purified from sin. Um, and I think sometimes people sense that. You know, you talk to people and they're kind of standoffish about church or about God or religious things. You try to invite someone to a Bible study, they're like, you know, that's not really my thing. Or you try to talk about God, they're like, eh. And it, it, you know, sometimes, not, not always, but sometimes the reason people feel that way and they're standoffish is deep, deep down, they just don't feel worthy. You know, they're just like, like deep down, it's like, look, if you knew my life, if you knew my you know, where I've been and the things I've said and done. Like, ah, I don't, I don't belong there. You know, it's like you're, you're, you think you're just inviting someone to church, but for some people what it feels or sounds like is it's sort of like you're saying, hey, come to the wedding reception in one hour. There's actually a couple seats open, and they're looking at themselves, and they're in their stinky, sweaty gym clothes, you know, and moldy, stinky clothes. And you're like, come on to the wedding reception. Come to church. It's awesome. And they're like, ah, oh, no, you know, I'm busy, and I'm not really a religious person and all that. But, you know, really the reason is like, ah, oh, I stink. I'm dirty. I don't belong there, you know? If you knew all the stuff, you wouldn't be asking me to go with those wonderful, shiny people. That's not me. And people feel that way, and uh, sometimes we, we have an awareness of that, even if we haven't fully articulated that. And, uh, and the thing about people who feel that way is <laughs> they're right. <laughs> they're right. 
None of us deserve to come to the wedding reception of God. None of us deserve to be singing his praises. None of us deserve to be calling on the name of the Lord or, like it says in verse 9, serving him shoulder to shoulder or worshiping him and bringing him offerings of praise. None of us are worthy. We are all stinky, moldy in our sins. So the message of the gospel isn't, ah, don't worry about it, you're actually okay. Come on, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is, yeah, you really do stink bad. But God has made a way for stinky people to become clean. God has made a way for really rotten people to be made whole. God has made a way for really guilty people to be acquitted. God has made a way. He has made a way of purification. See, again, verse 9. God says, I'm going to purify. God is going to change the spiritual condition of us before him. He is going to, he's going to cleanse us of these things. And now from our vantage point, of course, we, we stand years after Zephaniah. We stand later down the timeline of the history of God's plans. And we can look back and we can see how God actually brought about this purification. He brought it about through the sacrifice of his own son. He brought it about through the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood cleanses us from our sins. It's the only thing that can wash away my guilt and my moral impurity so that I can come before God as a holy and righteous person, not because of my file, but because of what Christ has done for me. That Christ has washed me clean. I'm I'm clean in Christ. It's amazing. On the cross, Jesus kind of took all my smelly, moldy, sweaty clothes of sin, and he put them on himself and went to the cross, and he gave me the royal robes of sonship so that now I can go to the feast. It was a great exchange of Christ's righteousness for me and my sin upon him. And so now there's a way to be purified. That's the... That's the passage we read earlier in Hebrews. In fact, let's go back there. Put a little bookmark here. Put something in this part of Zephaniah. And go back to Hebrews chapter 10 on page 1191. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1191. So much of Hebrews is just about how all these awesome Old Testament promises have come true in Jesus. It's kind of like the message of Hebrews. Jesus has fulfilled all these things. And so you go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that the holy of holies, we can go in where God is. Why? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us... Draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. How? Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So Christ's blood has sprinkled us. We're clean. And so we're drawing near to God with a clear conscience and a sincere heart. And we can come into his presence. Isn't that awesome? The way to God has been opened through Christ. We can be clean and pure and we can come to him. And so if you're here this morning, you feel far from God, you're like, no, 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 not me. 
maybe other people, but I've got mm, this big pile. This stink is really bad. I can't even live with it. You know, I, I could never get there. Christ can wash away your sins if you just put your faith in him. He can purify us from all of our, our sin and our disobedience and everything that we are ashamed of and should be ashamed of. And he can forgive it all. But you know, that's also, I think, a message for us as Christians. I wonder sometimes, for those of us here who claim to believe that, how much we really believe that. Even those of us who claim to know Christ, how, you know, I think sometimes we even are like, yeah, 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 I know Jesus died for me, I know I'm saved. But there's real Christians who are, who are really seeking God. They're really close to him. That's not really me. You know, we're kind of like in the back of the room. I, uh, it was, I had a funny conversation with a guy a couple weeks ago. He, you know, was full like this, and he came in late, and he had to sit in the front row. And he asked me afterwards, he goes, was I supposed to sit in the front row? Why isn't anyone in the front row? I was like, because you're in a Baptist church, dude. Like, <laughs> Baptist church is like the school bus. Like, the cool seats are in the back. You know what I'm saying? No, no one sits in the front. But I, I think sometimes if, if you think about that, think about that like the... the, the the realm of salvation, I think some of us feel like we, yeah, yeah, I'm saved, I know I'm saved, but I kind of belong in the back. And, and the real Christians, like the super spiritual people, they're like way up front, like hanging out with God and stuff, but I'm not really, for, that's not for me. That's not for me. That's for the other better Christians. And, and Hebrews is saying, no, 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 just go close. Come into the holy of holies. Come to the Lord. Because the Everything that stands between you and the Lord through Christ has been removed. There's nothing between you except the phantoms of your own mind. You just need to seek the Lord. Everything that would be against you to keep you from Christ has been taken away by Christ. So seek the Lord. You don't need me. You don't need a ritual. You don't need a pastor or a priest or confessional. Just go to the Lord. The way is clear because of what he has done and because of the purification. It's awesome. Access to God because our sins have been washed away through Christ. And not only that, but then the people of God are being purified. This purification has bigger implications. Look at verse 12. He says, um, actually go back to verse 11. I'll remove, about halfway down, I'll remove from this city. I'm back in Zephaniah, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Zephaniah 3.11. I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the Lord. You know, this is one of the differences between the old covenant of Israel and the new covenant in Christ, is that in the old covenant in Israel, the people of God, all those who were in the covenant community of God, were a mixed membership. The majority of the people didn't really follow God, and they kept following idols. And then there was a small sliver of the people who really did believe, and they were called the remnant, the remnant of Israel. And so here's God speaking to the remnant And he's like, when I do this great act of salvation, not only am I going to purify you personally, but I'm going to purify the whole people so that the only people in the covenant are going to be the remnant. There's not going to be this mixed bag, right? And so you again come to the New Testament, and what you find is that that the New Testament people of God are the remnant. It's, It's those who really believe in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Now it doesn't matter. 
So in other words, in the old covenant, if you're just born in Israel, you're part of the covenant. But in the new covenant, that's not how it works. You have to actually, as it says in verse 11, be meek and humble and trust the Lord. You have to enter in. You can't be born into salvation. You've got to be born again into salvation by trusting the Lord and turning your heart over to Him and repenting and seeking the Lord. And so even the people of God are going to be different in this new time of salvation. And it even gets better. This is the one that kind of blew my mind. It didn't catch it at first, but look how far this purification is going to go. The remnant of Israel, so this saved people in the future, will do no wrong. What? Do no wrong? Hmm. They will speak no lies. No deceit will be found in their mouths. So, so this purification is being envisioned to such an extent that someday these people who are being purified won't actually ever do anything wrong. I'm guessing that's not talking about right now. <laughs> but it's part of the promise that God is going to complete the purification of his people. So, okay, so before I came to Jesus, I was a slave to sin. I just sinned. That's all I knew. That's what I did. I was a slave. I went along with the world. I did things that were wrong. Didn't really bother me a lot of times. And then I came to Jesus, and something happened. He forgave the guilt of my sin, and he also broke the power of sin in my life. So as a follower of Christ, I'm no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to sin if you're a Christian. The power of sin is broken. Has sin been taken out of my life completely? No. It's still there, but it's no longer enslaving me. Now I'm under the power of the Spirit, and I have power through God to resist my sinful nature and fight back. And so there's a battle going on, but it's a different kind of battle. It's not enslavement. It's, it's fighting back. But there's coming a day where even that root of sin will just be gone, and I won't have any desire to disobey the Lord. Whew, I can't wait for that. I had someone ask me once, you know, I'm kind of worried that when we get to heaven, it's going to be like Adam and Eve all over again, and we're going to get to this wonderful place, and we're going to screw it up again just like they did. Like, what if the whole thing repeats itself, and we're in this, like, terrible cycle forever and ever? And I'm like, not going to happen, because we'll be saved to sin no more, completely beyond the reach of our own disobedience. It will be gone, and we'll be in Christ. Is anyone else psyched for that? I mean, you know, like 99% of the problems in your life come from sin, whether your sin or others. Really? I mean, there's some random things that happen, but like most of it's just because people hurt each other and people do dumb things and people don't live according to God's laws. That's why the world's messed up. And so to finally be in a place where I'm forgiven and my, that impulse in me to go my own way and fight against God is taken away. Oh, purity. Purity is such a beautiful thing. Purity is wonderful. It's joy and life and happiness. And that's one of the things in the display case. Okay, let me quickly show you two other display cases. I'll go faster on these two. Why should we seek the Lord? Hey, here's the number one reason. Purification from sin. God can forgive us, save us. But really quickly, two other reasons to seek the Lord. A second reason, another display case with the pastries of salvation. The, num- the second reason is because God will save us from our enemies. 
He'll save us from our enemies. He'll purify us from our sins, and He'll save us from our enemies. Look at verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's pretty loud. What's all the noise about? Because the Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Don't be afraid, verse 16. Don't let your heads hang limp. The Lord is with you. He is mighty to save. So God has not only forgiven our sins in Christ, but in Christ He's also beaten back our enemies. You know, Israel lived in a constant state of fear from enemies. Think about Israel. We talked about this last Sunday. To the west were the Philistines. To the east were the Ammonites and the Moabites. To the south were the Egyptians. To the north were the Assyrians. Israel lived in a circle of hostility always being threatened from all sides. And the way it worked under the Old Covenant was this. When God's people, when Israel was obeying God, they had victory over their enemies. And when they stopped obeying God, the enemies had victory over them. So they obey God, they win. They disobey God, they lose. That's how it worked under the Old Covenant. And we know from the history of Israel that ultimately they were a disobedient people because they ultimately lost. Within like 50 years of Zephaniah's prophecy, uh, Jerusalem was completely overrun and razed by the Babylonians. The temple was burned down, the wall was knocked down, the whole city was flattened and sacked by the Babylonian armies. But there's coming this time of salvation. Again, look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment He has turned back your enemy. God has forgiven your sins. God has taken away your sin through Christ. And therefore, you no longer have to fear enemies because God is with you and God is on your side. You think about Jesus again. Think about how he has beaten all of our enemies. Every enemy we have has been beaten by Jesus. He's beaten sin, right? That's my own worst enemy is me. I look in the mirror, there's my my worst problem. And and he's, he's forgiven that. He's, he's canceled the power of sin in my life. He's going to remove it someday. Christ has, has beaten my worst enemy. And then there's the enemy of the world. You know, we live in a world that's riddled with sin, and it's, it's against us. If you're going to try to follow Christ fervently in this world, it's going to be swimming upstream. It's going to be swimming upstream. It's really hard. You know, what shows are there on TV that are really encouraging you to follow Jesus? What's the latest blockbuster movie you saw that was extolling Jesus and encouraging you to believe in him? What's the latest government policy or law that was passed that was really stoking you to follow the Lord? You know? How, how many times do your neighbors come over and say, you need to really, let's seek the Lord, don't you think? You know, it just... The whole direction and momentum of the world is away from Christ. And so to follow the Lord and to follow Jesus and to make him preeminent and not just one type of spirituality, that kind of works for me, but I don't want to push it on you. But to make Christ like the Lord, the King, which he is, the Savior, is going to get pushback in different degrees depending on what part of the world you live in. And so this is hard. The world is against us in that sense. But Jesus Christ has overcome the world. The world threw everything it had at him. Boom, boom, boom. And he overcame. 
Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. So Jesus has beaten my sin, he's overcome the world, he's overcome the devil. You know, the Bible is really clear that in addition to, to our own poor choices and in addition to, to world systems and societal pressures, there is above and beyond that um, malevolent intelligences that are working for the destruction of God's glory in the world. We call these demons or Satan, and people go, ah, but, you know, it's real. It's real. That There's somebody with the puppet strings tugging and, you know, pulling. The Bible says that there is the prince of the power of the air who is at work in those who are disobedient. But Jesus Christ has beaten the devil too. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He triumphed over the principalities and powers on the cross, making a public spectacle of them. Jesus took everything that Satan had to tempt him with and do to him, and he overcame on the other side. And so in Jesus, there is victory. He is above every power and authority and every title, and all the forces of this world are under his feet. He's the king and the risen Lord. He's the king of Israel, and he's with us. He's with us. And of course, Jesus has beaten the final enemy, the big enemy, the big, hairy, toothed, horned enemy that's waiting around the corner for every one of us. Jesus has beaten death. I mean, death, that's the big one. No one beats that enemy. Everyone goes into the castle to try to slay that dragon. We all die. Jesus went into the maw of that beast. He walked in and it clamped its jaws over him. And three days later, death was dead and Christ was alive. And so it says in Revelation, Jesus says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold in my hand the keys to death in Hades. So what in the world are we so afraid of? (laughs) All of our enemies have been put down. Jesus has beaten every single possible bad guy. Every mob, every boss, every, every threat has been put down by Jesus. He's beaten sin and the world and the devil and even death itself. He's risen from the dead. And so if you're in Christ, you have the victory. You have the victory in Christ. And someday those enemies will be destroyed. They're defeated now, but they're not gone, are they? Sin's still fighting back. The world's still pushing. Devil's still trying his best. I still got to die someday. But those are kind of like, they're like the last gasps of the enemy before Christ returns, not just to defeat, but to destroy those things forever in a world where he will be king and righteousness will reign. This is his promise to us. I mean, wow, seek the Lord, seek the Lord because of that great salvation that's coming, purification from sin, the overthrow of every enemy that could stand against you is in Jesus. Let me just show you one more. This is, okay, here's the last blessing of salvation that should motivate us to seek the Lord, and I'll just look at this real quickly, but this is like the, uh, this is the centerpiece of the whole pastry shop. This is the display case in the window that sucks you in. This is so amazing. It's verse 17. I don't even know if I can preach verse 17. 
It's just so big. It's so, you just kind of have to stare at it and slobber. Okay? Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take God. God will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So we should seek the Lord, not just to escape judgment, but to receive purity and to have our enemies defeated and ultimately to experience God coming near to rejoice over us. I I can't even get my head around that. God would delight in me. God wouldn't want to delight in me or us. But he delights in his people. God is is happy in us. God God looks at his people and he's like, yes! His love and his delight in us is so great that it just quiets us. And and all of our worries and fears and waking up in the middle of the night, stressing out about things and doubts and everything, you know, when God's love and delight comes upon you, it just pushes it all away. You're quieted. And then that last line is just ridiculous. God will rejoice over you with singing. What does it sound like when God sings and rejoices over his people? There's coming a day when it's all said and done and all of the enemies have been put down and all of God's work is complete and God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will look upon the mass of people that he has saved. He will look upon that mass of people that he predestined before the creation of the world to save, that from before time, God says, I'm going to save them. And he'll look at that people for whom he's been orchestrating all of history to bring them to himself, from Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and then the Old Testament and Moses and, and the, everything in the the prophets and Zephaniah and King David and all the stuff in the Old Testament, all that leading up to Jesus, God was working and all that because he's going to save this people. And finally, he sends his son Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And in Christ, he makes the way for us to be forgiven. Our sins are forgiven and Jesus is dead and he's buried and he's raised. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And now the gospel is going out into the world, all over the world. And people are hearing the gospel and one by one by one by one, people are going, and they're coming to faith. The remnant is being gathered. And and those who come to faith in Christ receive the Holy Spirit and and that spirit holds on to them. So even though we're like, "Ah," you know, trying to get away, God is just hauling us, hauling us to eternal life because he's not going to be stopped. He's not going to lose one person. This is his plan to save, and, and he's going to do it. And then he's going to save those people, and he's going to get us to eternal life, and someday he'll have every final one there, and he'll look at the people that he has gathered, this mass of people that he has rescued from the flames of hell for himself. He's going to look at, at the prostitute that's been rescued out of the sewage of sin and turned into the bride. He's going to look at us. He's going to rejoice. God is going to look at us and he's going to just say, yes, and take great delight in a people that he has saved who who forever will display to the whole universe that he is a great Savior. 
will we'll reflect his glory. And then something's going to happen. God is going to roar forth in song. And it will be a song that will shake the fabric of reality. Because when God sings, there's nothing like it. And he will rejoice over his people and invite them into the joy of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, inviting us into the dance, inviting us into his glory as we reflect his glory back to him and he delights in us. It's unspeakably wonderful. That's why we need to seek the Lord. You don't want to miss that. You want to be part of the people in whom God takes delight. God will be either forever done with you or he will forever delight in you. You need to seek the Lord. And isn't it amazing to think that that delight the Lord has in in us isn't just for the very end, but it starts now. God's already delighting in us. Not because of who we are, but because of his saving power reflected in us. God is already delighting in us. Didn't Jesus say that when one sinner repents, the angels go bananas, heaven erupts. So seek the Lord. Be pure. Join the people of God. Have the enemies defeated and know a God who comes to delight in his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are in awe of you and your great love for us and all you have done to save us, Lord. All we did was just kind of present the problem and you've done everything else. Oh, Lord, we worship you and no wonder you often say that our minds can't yet conceive what is in store for us and the inheritance is coming. And so, Lord, help us to seek you Oh God, we confess, even reading Zephaniah, we're just so weak and fickle and we just know what's going to happen. We're just going to go home and we're going to start seeking other things and we're going to lose sight of you. So God, we just pray, keep holding on to us. Keep dragging us closer to yourself. Oh Lord, I just pray, cause us to delight in you, to humble ourselves before you. I pray, God, that people who haven't prayed to you in years would pray to you this afternoon and would just seek you. Even if that prayer is like, Are you even there, God? Whatever, just, Lord, cause us to start the process of seeking and looking for you. And Lord, may people find you. I I pray that many would come to know you, Jesus. And Lord, may we find you too. And so, Lord, help us to believe these things and to live these things and treasure these things. We ask this, Jesus, in your name.